Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Give you a moment to turn there. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you have one of these Bibles uh, located in the back, that's going to be on page 812. So page 812 and uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but about half have been given 12 verses that we'll read together. So we're going to jump a little bit. Let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And lastly, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Thanks, Brent. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, first thing I want to do this morning is welcome uh, those who are uh, watching uh, this morning from various places. We have a lot of members who are traveling uh, on spring break. So if you guys are there, you're tuning in and watching us this morning, welcome. We're really glad to have you. Hope you guys have a great week and enjoy your family. And for those of you who are gathered here with us, um, my prayer is that God would speak to us again this morning. Um, you know, there is a there, there's a really big difference between being serious and being sad. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but there's a difference there. Um, The opposite of sad is happy or joyful. And the opposite of serious is to be flippant or joking. Those are different emotions there. Those are different, different, uh, different expressions. Everybody knows the difference between the effect that a comedian has on you, for example, and the effect that a friend has on you who is willing to, willing and ready to lay down his life for you. Those are very different people. C.S. Lewis said that there is a kind of happiness that makes you serious, and there's no contradiction, therefore, between being serious and being happy. Deeply, profoundly, unshakably Happy. Now, the reason why I say that is because the verses in front of us this morning are very, very serious. There's a serious tone here to Matthew 7 that cannot be missed. I mean, the way that Jesus talks leaves you trembling. At least it should. It should have that effect. There should be some sense in that when you read Matthew 7, you, you walk away from that sort of a little shaken by that. It should leave that, leave you with that emotion. These are serious words. And, and, and Jesus talks like this. And, and one of the reasons why he does that is because he is giving us warnings this morning, uh, to our church. He's speaking to us. He's giving us now warnings about false security. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit to pull us off false assurances. False security that we can heap up in our life. And he wants to put us on solid ground. And that ironically shows his love for us. 
It shows that he is relentless in helping people discern whether their life and profession is built on the sand or whether their life and profession is built on the rock. And you see, a person that does that is a loving person who cares most deeply about you. Now, I say all that because people in our day, they get confused between this business of being serious and being sad so that if a church, for example, like ours this morning, has a seriousness about its preaching because a given text like Matthew 7 calls for it, then don't assume that that is a sad church. And it's an important point to make because it's really just the opposite, is that serious passages like this exist, hear me, as an attempt actually to serve our joy in Jesus, not to make us sad but to make us profoundly happy and secure and trusting in Jesus. Because if we will understand what he's saying, they will, that it will make us the kind of people that are immensely happy. And so Jesus is actually serving our joy by giving us something serious. He's trying to free us from the fleeting pleasures of sin, as Hebrews talks about it, and put us on a solid ground where deep, unshakable joy in Jesus are found and, hear this, can never be taken away by tragedy or loss or death or cancer or anything else. So he's trying to move us off of insecurity, off of sort of this shallow Christian experience, off this nominal Christianity, onto solid ground that's totally unshakable, that's completely trusting in him, so that when the worst comes, you're still fine. So Jesus is really going after your joy this morning. He's going after your trust in him. So yeah, is the text serious? It's very serious. Is it sad? No, it's not sad. It's sad in some senses in that you see people who are have false assurances. But is it meant to make us sad? No, it's meant to make us incredibly happy and trusting. So what I want to do is, in fact, let, let me just mention an example. So think about Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, we have this sort of worked out in that we have people who, in Hebrews 10, joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Why? Why does Hebrews 10 say? Because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. All right. So, so we're talking about serious stuff there. Somebody who your house gets stolen. Your, you know, these guys, their, their house is, is stolen. It, it's probably burning and it's on fire. And these people are singing and rejoicing while their house is on fire because they had an authentic faith, a faith that was deep. And had a deep abiding joy in Jesus so that when the worst comes and the worst hits, they're singing. They're worshiping. And the question is, what produces that? It's this. It's it's having a real faith that's rooted in Jesus, not some false nominal Christian thing. So please hear this hard word this morning from Jesus about the dangers of having a false profession, and hear it as a loving invitation to a real life of faith and lasting joy in Jesus. All right, so that's where we're headed this morning. And one final word of preface is this, is that some of you um, have, you're just by nature, such sensitive and tender consciences. And what I mean by that is that you're tempted, you'll be tempted to take a passage like this, and, and you hear these hard words from Jesus and that you'll be pulled unnecessarily. Some of you are just bent that way. You know, you already struggle with an assurance of your salvation. And so you could hear a text like this and just be just crushed. And, and my prayer for you is this, is that I don't want that to happen to you. See, I don't want anybody's assurance to be shaken this morning that doesn't need to be shaken. But what Jesus is after is that if you're here this morning and you need your false assurance to be shaken then I hope your assurance is shaken. Do you see what I'm saying? So how do we, how do you navigate that? I can't, I can't control that. But I can only pray and I can trust that Jesus is sovereign and he's good and he knows who you are. And so let's pray and ask him this morning to navigate the so that people um, who need to be, who need to hear hard words will hear hard words and people who don't need to be unnecessarily crushed will walk away feeling joy. Does that make sense? Let's pray to that end and ask for God's help. Father, we, we, we pray, we ask for your help this morning in opening this portion of your powerful word. And, and so I, I feel my profound need 
to, uh, of your help to do that because this is so difficult, so hard, these words. And yet, Lord, your people are here and they want to hear from you, they want to hear your word. So I pray that you would, it would have its appointed effect on your people, that those who are being drawn to listen this morning will, will have ears to hear. I pray that, um, you will protect us from error and imbalance, that you will save, sanctify, secure, stabilize, increase joy, heal, reconcile, and that many, many untold blessings will come as a result of these moments that we share in your word together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to this final section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is the conclusion of the greatest sermon uh, ever preached by a man named Jesus, the God-man. And so, just so you know, um, I'm not going to spend any time on verses 1 through 6. Because a few months ago, I preached a sermon um, on judge not, lest you be judged. And so I just encourage you to, to find the link right there on the screen. Download that message if you haven't heard it. Um, and you can get all that information because um, that was an important message. It's one of the most uh, twisted scriptures uh, in the New Testament. Um, and so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And so we're going to jump right into this morning to verse seven, and then we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. And, and if you're one who likes to take notes, we have really three points this morning. Uh, the first is Jesus gives us instruction on prayer, and that is in verses seven through 12. And then Jesus gives us instruction on false prophets or false teachers, and that's 15 through 20. And then Jesus gives us instruction on false professions, which is 13 and 14, and then 21 through 27. So those are the, those are the sort of divisions, and we're going to look at those this morning. Let's start with prayer. Uh, Jesus has been talking about our relationship with others, obviously with his judge not, lest you be judged section. He's talking about judgmentalism, and he moves right from that into our relationship with God. We go from horizontal back to the vertical. And specifically, what Jesus is doing here is he is motivating us to pray. Does anybody need any motivation for prayer? Uh, I find that prayer is is one of those things that I have to be constantly motivated toward. And you wouldn't think so. You think if you have the opportunity to speak to the creator of the universe at any moment, that you'd be massively motivated all the time. But because of sin and our remaining flesh, we're not like that. We struggle to pray. It's hard work. And so Jesus knows that. He knows our frame. So what Jesus does is he stirs us up. He gives us some promises. He throws some things on us and says, hey, I've got some really good news for you about prayer. And that's what he does for us. He gives us good news. Um, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Now, notice that Jesus is encouraging us to pray by giving us these promises. John Calvin says, nothing is better suited to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Isn't that good news? So it's not going to go unheard. What you pray is absolutely going to be heard by God and something will be done about that. So that is great news for us this morning. So we have a group, uh, a group of promises here attached uh, to these verbs. If you ask, God will answer. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open. And notice the universal nature of these promises. He says, for everyone who asks. It's like there's no restriction here. Everyone who asks. Now, to explain this great promise, Jesus gives us an illustration in verses 9 through 11. He imagines a scene where a child comes to his father and asks him for bread. And what's the point of this? What's the father going to do? Is the father going to say, hey, bud, here's a stone? No, he's going to say, if you want bread, here's bread. And that's the whole point here. He'll give him bread. And Jesus is, this is a how much more argument. Jesus is saying, and this guy's an evil man. Notice it says if evil men, if an evil man, a, a child comes to even an evil man. So Jesus' point is, is if even wicked people give bread to kids who ask for it, then how much more will God give you bread when you ask for it? So you got a how much more argument. The, the answer is way more, of course. God is totally unlike us. John Stott says, the trouble is that for many of us, this seems too simple. 
in our sophistication, we can't believe it. So we turn these prayer promises into problems. In other words, there's a sense in which we are sort of tempted to say, I, 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 this is too good to be true. I can't believe it. So I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to flip the promise on its head and I'm going to turn it into some kind of impossible thing. And I'm going to create a big problem about it. So we start saying to ourselves things like this. I, don't, I just can't believe these words are too good to be true. I mean, and, and my experience proves it. We say things like, I pray and nothing happens. God doesn't give me what I ask. I prayed and prayed, but to no avail. I prayed to pass the exam and I failed it. I prayed to get healed, but I got worse. Prayer doesn't work. Now, we don't verbalize that, but inside, anybody thought things like that? I'm wasting my time. I'm praying. I'm trying to seek God, but nothing's happening And so the evil one comes in and he begins to tempt you and he begins to give you a spirit of unbelief. And all that is coming from two things. One, a heart of unbelief and two, a great misunderstanding. See, Jesus says, ask, seek and knock. And I want you to just think about that for a minute. Seeking, seeking, especially that word requires effort. If you lose something, do you normally find it right away? Or are you normally, you know, moving around everywhere, searching, backtracking, trying to find things? It takes time. Seeking takes time. It takes effort. Knocking, is that just, when you go to a house, do you just tap once? Or do you knock? And if somebody doesn't hear you, you keep knocking. What's the point? There is effort required here with prayer. But for some reason in our, in a, sort of in our thinking, we just expect God to give us what we want right now. I want it right now. I asked, God, I asked, and where's my answer? And, and it, God is driving us to our knees. He's saying, I'm talking about dependence on me. I'm talking about a real pursuit of me. I'm talking about an aggressive seeking after God consistently and persistently. And that's the whole point of his parable about the, uh, about the persistent widow. It just keeps going and asking and asking and asking. And it's not because God's unwilling to give. There's something that he's teaching us in that process. So we have to embrace the process. There's a misunderstanding here. When we say things like, nothing happens. God doesn't give me what we ask. John, John Stott says it this way. This is very helpful. He says, we need to remember that the words of Jesus are not intended to be unconditional. It's absurd to suppose that the promise, ask, and it will be given to you, is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock, and it will be open to you, is an open sesame To every closed door without exception. And that by waving a prayer wand, every dream will come true. The idea is ridiculous. It would turn prayer into magic. The person who prays uh, into a magician and God into our servant who appears instantly to do our bidding every time we rub the prayer lamp. Now, we generally get that, don't we? We know that that's not what prayer is about. But then the question is, well, then what then does the promise actually mean? Well, let me say a couple of things. And and let's just start with what we know about God. Okay, we know that God is good. And since God is good, he will only give good gifts to his children. Right. The second thing we know is that God is wise. And because he's wise, he knows which gifts are good and which gifts are not good. And he knows which things you need and which things you do not need. Therefore, we can and we should conclude that God is totally trustworthy. And he will never give us something harmful. Hear this. Even if we ask for it urgently and repeatedly. Oh, God, please give me this thing. Give me this thing. And you're begging God to do it. And God's like, I'm not doing that because that's not going to help you. That is not good for you. See, because here's the thing. God is in the habit of always giving his kids good gifts. So if the gift is not good, he's not going to give it to you. Which means if we ask for good things, he'll grant them. Or if we ask for things that are either not good in themselves or they're not good for us right now, then what we then what will he do? He won't give it to us. Do you see? So 
So whatever the case is, we can always trust him. Sometimes God will give us what we ask. Sometimes he will not give us what we ask. But in both cases, we should be thankful because he's always doing for us what is absolutely best. And so we just learn to trust God's heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, I am profoundly grateful to God that he did not grant me certain things for which I asked. That he shut certain doors in my face. Has anybody felt that before? You're like, man, I am so glad God did not answer that prayer. I was so, I, I thought I knew the way. I thought I had the right plan. And I was praying and I was praying persistently and I was fasting and I was seeking God for it. And God said, nope. And then later, two, three years later, you're like, that is such a blessing. I am so grateful God closed that door. In, I like how Lloyd-Jones says, in my face. Sometimes that, that the answer hurts. And God is just like, no, sir. So that's his instruction on prayer. And by the way, here's what's really cool as I was studying the passage. That's how the golden rule fits in this text. It seems like he moves to the golden rule. It's like, okay, do you want others as you have in the world? How does that fit with anything? The very next thing is the, the, the gate, the narrow gate in the way. And you're like, what is the golden rule doing sitting there? And I think the logic works like this. Verse 12 is a conclusion of verse 11. Look at your Bible. Look, look down at the text. Verse 12 is the conclusion to verse 11 on prayer. The logic works like this. Since God is good to all who seek him in prayer, we must follow his example and do good to others. In other words, treat people the way you want to be treated. Okay, here's my question for you. How do you want to be treated? You want to be treated the way God always treats you. So there's a mission there. Do unto others as God does to you. Treat them the way he treats you. Because that's how you want to be treated. And so that's looking at it now. Um, in the second place, Jesus moves on to an instruction on false prophets in verses 15 to 20. And we're going to come back to 13 and 14 in a moment. But let's just, let's just take a, let's just take a minute and absorb what we're studying here. And, uh, and then we're going to move back into 13 and 14. So we're going to move this thing about false prophets, which is really, really important in our day. Turn on TV, flip it on to the God channel or TBN or, I mean, there's a bunch of them out there. Um, and, and, and watch any of these guys and within minutes you're hearing heresy. Just unbelievable amounts of heresy just spewing out of these guys. And, and, and if you're undiscerning as a Christian and you're listening to that, and God forbid some people sit at home on Sunday morning and watch that filth consistently, and you're hearing this stuff and you're saying, man, these undiscerning Christians are listening to this and they're being affected by this. And then they become really, really skewed in their understanding of God. And then and it starts to affect their lifestyle. And so this issue of false teaching and false prophets is huge in our day. And so it's like, you know, the person who puts a beware of the dog sign on the door. That's there to warn you that there is danger ahead. And Jesus puts a beware sign here. He says, beware of false prophets. There is danger ahead. If you walk through this door, you are going to get bit. You are going to get eaten. Something bad is going to happen to you. And so we're supposed to feel that as a warning. And that's what he does. Jesus warns us that danger false teachers are ahead. And telling you to wear them, Jesus is assuming that there's a standard of truth by which these false prophets are weighed against. There's an objective standard written word of God by which we judge these guys. How do you know if this guy on TBN is real? How do you know if he's legit? How do you know if he's true? You judge him against what does this say? And when they don't stack up, you realize there's something wrong here. Notice how Jesus talks about these guys. Verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly, what are they? Ravenous wolves. But you don't know it. I mean, this, is the, this is the picture you get in Genesis when Adam are, are, are in the garden and the serpent. And he's disguised as this, this, this incredibly charismatic person who is very enticing to them. And when they look at him, they think, oh, this is a great guy. This is a great person. This is a great... Uh, a lot of people think that the serpent in Genesis is actually an allusion to an angelic being, a very handsome figure. 
who would have who would have come in the form of man and actually tempted and lured Adam and Eve away with his seductive, charismatic personality. So here's the idea here is that this is the same way that these guys are. These false teachers are very seductive. You hear them and while you're hearing them preach and teach, you feel good inside. You start feeling, man, I really like this guy. This is good stuff. And he's, I'm getting goosebumps and I, I'm enjoying this. And, and he's seducing you. And he's a ravenous wolf inside. So Jesus is very descriptive. Jesus tells us three things about these false teachers. Verse 15. First thing he tells us is what they look like. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Uh, the danger is they look like they're good and harmless, but they're actually wolves. And here's the thing. Sheep are utterly defenseless creatures when it comes to wolves. The the wolf was the, the primary sort of danger animal for, for a sheep in, in this culture. And so... Jesus is using this analogy, and that means the church, that means you people, you folks, are at the mercy of good shepherds and pastors, or you're going to be thrown out to the wolves. And, and we live in a culture where it, it just, it literally depends on where you're at, what ministry you're sitting under. And honestly, you can be hurt. You can be really hurt. If we had a moment where we could have people come up and share testimonies of, church experiences that they've had, I, I'm sure many of you could say, man, I was completely messed up by a certain ministry or teacher that I was under for a few years. And I'm, I'm just telling you that, that that's a reality. And Jesus is saying, I don't want that for my sheep. I want them protected. Number two, we see what these, uh, these wolves, these false teachers, the ravenous wolves. When what do wolves do? They eat sheep. They devour them. To use biblical language to steal Kill, destroy. They come to eat your lunch. They come to destroy you. Uh, compare that to a good, a good shepherd, a good pastor will lead, feed, guide, and protect. Those are the primary responsibilities of a pastor. Lead, feed, guide, and protect. And can compare that with these false teachers. J.C. Ryle says this about good teachers. He says that a, a, a true prophet, a true teacher, is someone who is marked by sound teaching and holy living so the, the those are marks the false teacher on the other hand leads his flock with coercion and manipulation he feeds them food that initially may taste really good going down like a lot of sugar but it's actually cancer to the soul so that when it gets in your system and starts working its way out you get really really sick he guides them to a place of danger like to a precipice so that he knows that at any flick of his finger, they're going to fall off and be wrecked and ruined. And then they eventually, they die under his care. These folks, they get deceived and they go to hell. They do. I mean, David Koresh and others who, through their seductive personality, lead all these people astray. And there's something about the Christian sub-community that gets really kooky sometimes. You watch certain things and certain teachers... And then, and then you're just like, this is getting real weird. And there's this like sort of idolization of the teacher, this following of this guy. Everything he says is right. And it's like this blind, loyal following of this character. And you're watching these people and you're saying, this is so sad that this person is so duped by this guy. This person cannot see anything else. And if you try to correct that person or say the scriptures don't teach that, it's like you can't even get them out of that cult because they're so deeply entrenched in that thing. And when somebody gets to that point, look, only the Holy Spirit can come through there and fix that. That is serious. Have you guys seen that? You know what I'm talking about? And these, and they get so sucked in. It's like, it's scary. And so th- this is what we see here. These, these, these are who these, these, these wolves are. So we see that what they look like, they come in sheep's clothing. We see what they do. And, and, and here's my question is, how do you know that you're dealing then with a false prophet? What kind of test do we have? And Jesus tells them 16, he gives us another sort of illustration of, of the tree. Tree is known by its fruit analogy. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. What fruits? Well, let me mention a few. Here's, here's a couple of fruits for you. Uh, say, false prophet alert. How do we know? False teacher. Number one, check out his character and his conduct. His character and his conduct. Because if the fruit of the Spirit is things like 
patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. If, if those kind of things are the fruit of the Spirit, then what should you expect to see in a false teacher? The opposite. You should expect to see enmity, impurity, jealousy, self-indulgence. Because it's not coming from the Spirit, so you're, you, you should expect the opposite. So you look at his character and his conduct. Does it stack up? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in his life? Not just his words, but his life. Number two, his teaching. Or evaluate his teaching. Look at what he actually teaches. Is it biblical? Are you sure? Don't just accept what he says. Much of what he says, hear this, this is really important. Much of what he says may move your heart and emotion. While he's preaching, you may feel a sense of power. And you may be tempted to think, man, that's power from on high. That's Holy Spirit power. Not so fast. That might be demonic power manifesting itself in you feeling really emotionally charged while he's speaking. In many cases, people can have their hearts and emotions moved. But power and emotion do not equal truth. In fact, in many cases, power and emotion in the pulpit is a method that the devil can use to disguise error. So that you can't see through it. You just think, oh man, I was so powerfully moved by that guy's preaching. And then then the whole time, he's spewing off all kinds of heresy. And then you're completely seduced by it. Number three. Here's another test. What about the fruit of his ministry? What does he leave in his wake? So let's just look at what he's produced. Over the years, what's this producing? What kind of people examine the fruit of his ministry? And if the fruit of his ministry is rotten, then guess what? It's coming from a rotten source. So one final word here on verses 15 to 20. John Stott says, The warning of Jesus gives us no encouragement to become suspicious of everybody or to take up as our hobby the disreputable sport known as heresy hunting. All right, so there's extremes here. On the one hand, we need to be really, really cautious of false teachers. On the other hand, we don't need to be, you know, this. there's, there's all these discernment ministries online, you know? Like, I'm concerned about, you know, Paul Washer's a false prophet. John Piper's a false prophet. Mark, and it's like, man, really? Everybody's a false prophet? I mean, it's like, and, and these guys get on there, and it's like their, their thing is to constantly talk about how which one of these evangelicals is a false prophet because they have a different theological view on a minor topic, you know? And so that's the opposite problem. It's constantly, man, I'm, I'm Mr. Discernment. I'm the one that tells everybody sort of what's wrong with everybody else. That that's not good, and that's not where we're headed. John Stott is absolutely right to say that that is not that's a disreputable sport. Don't be that guy. Don't be that person. You know, there's this great cartoon where there's a guy uh, seated. It's a, it's a little cartoon, and he's seated at his computer, and it's late. It's like three o'clock in the morning, and this this his sort of wife comes out. Her hair's everywhere, and his hair's everywhere and just looks completely disheveled. And she looks at him. She goes, honey, why don't you go to bed? And he looks back. He says, I can't. Somebody on the Internet is wrong. <laughs> but you see these guys, these Christians, guys that they sit in their basement all day and they're on blogs, you know, arguing with all these people about what's wrong with their perspective and what's wrong with their view. And, and I just want to say to a guy, man, get off your computer, man. Get off your computer and actually have a relationship with Jesus and stop criticizing everybody else out there in the evangelical world because they don't have your view on this topic or that topic. Jesus is not pleased. You're not some hero in the evangelical movement because you're on your computer at 3 o'clock in the morning while your wife's in bed by herself. You're a lousy husband. That's what you are. Get off your computer, have a relationship with Jesus, and quit acting like that. You know, it's just, it's unbelievable. But yeah, you see it all the time. People just have the, 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 the discernment. Don't be that person. So two ditches and stay away from false prophets. I mean, these are tensions. And they're meant to be tensions. And we hold them together. All right. Now, finally, we move on to this last section, which is instruction about false professions of faith. And uh, in verse 13, Jesus says, enter into the narrow gate. And what's striking about these verses is the absolute nature of the choice before us. There's a progression here. 
And we have two gates, all right, leading to two paths, which lead to two destinations. Two gates, two paths, two destinations. The two gates, Jesus says, there's the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And then he says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So we have a wide gate and a narrow gate. And the gate that is wide, okay, opens up to an easy way. It's an e- it's easy to get on that path. Anybody can do it. And you don't have to leave, leave anything behind. The gate is wide open. And it opens to a massive highway. And there's so many people, packed with people. And, 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 and here, the, you can bring as much baggage as you want onto that highway. I mean, just bring it all in. Drag it all in. Whatever you want, bring it all in. All your toys, all your things, bring it all in. Because the gate's wide. And there's no restriction on baggage. And you can bring it all in. All these people hanging out with all their toys and all their inventory and, and walking and having a good time, partying all, just having a, it is, man, it is, it's, it's, it's Bourbon Street, it, it's Mardi Gras, it is, it's all there, man, just having a time. That's the, that's the highway. There it is. And, and then you have, you have, so you have the big highway and then you have the narrow gate. Alright, and the narrow gate is hard to find. I mean, you actually really have to look for it. In fact, it's easy to miss. The only way to find it is actually to find Christ. Because Christ says in John 10, 9, that he is the door, right? He is the gate. So in order to get through it, that gate, here's the thing. You have to leave everything behind. So you can't take all that stuff in there. Because that's a narrow gate, all right? So you got to leave your pride, and you got to leave your self-righteousness, and you, and you got to ritualism, and you got to leave behind, and all that behind, you got to leave your worship of money, your worship of power, your worship of control. You gotta leave all those idols behind. Your, your, your sex addictions, all that stuff, all the things you worship. You gotta repent and you gotta come to Him in brokenness. And when you do, doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't continue to struggle, even struggle significantly. It just means that there is a breaking point where you repented and you turned and you went in through the narrow gate and you dropped that stuff behind. Now, you'll find ways in once you're eight. But the point is, there's a point where Jesus says, we're breaking right here. We're stopping, staking the ground, and we're different. And there's repentance that happens. And so that stuff at the door. All right? So that's the gate, the wide, narrow gate. And that opens itself up to two ways, right? You got the easy way and the hard way. The easy path is just what you think it is. It has no boundaries. I mean, there's no rules. I mean, it's completely a free-for-all. Whatever you want to do. There's no restrictions on you. The road of tolerance. You're free to do as you please. No effort required. Just follow the inclinations of your heart. Just do whatever makes you feel good. You know? And it requires no sacrifice. No commitment. Just be who you are. Just do what you want to do. Well, the other way is hard. You know? It's, it's, it's hard. It's, it requires sacrifice and commitment and faithfulness to God. And it's guided by boundaries and the boundaries that are laid out for us in his word. And so you look at that in your flesh and you say, who wants to be on that road? I don't want restrictions. I don't want boundary markers. I don't want to, you know, have to sacrifice. And, and Jesus is saying, okay, but this is a crisis moment in your life. You can be on that broad road. You can have a big time. You can party and do it all right now. Or you can go through the narrow gate and follow a hard path and sacrifice and follow God faithfully. Because here's the thing. Those two paths lead to two destinations. All right. One is eternal death and destruction. And one is eternal life. Throughout history, here's the problem. Evangelicals today... You will see so many evangelicals today who are people who are happy to confess that Jesus is the only way. They're happy to say that there's a narrow gate. They're happy to say that there's only one way to heaven. But here's the thing. If you watch their lifestyle, it just appears that they're totally walking on the broad path. What the little disconnect there isn't there. So Jesus is the only gate, the only way. And, and in order to get to the final destination, you have to go through that narrow gate. But hey, man, you know, life's great, isn't it? And there seems to be this sort of party spirit on the broad road. And you're like, man, what, did you really go through the narrow gate? Because the way you're living looks like you're totally on the highway, man. So what's going on here? I mean, they live like everybody else in the world. 
And somehow they think they're still saved because they acknowledge that Jesus is the only way. But mere intellectual assent is not enough and has never been enough. Simply saying that Jesus is the narrow gate does not therefore make you saved. Throughout history, we see this cycle where the gospel moves in power among people. They're born again. Their lives are changed. Jesus is everything to them. And they live out their Christianity with great sacrifice, great enthusiasm, great commitment, great fidelity. But as the generations continue, eventually that faith erodes into a mere creed. And so that the children of the children then and subsequent generations begin to believe that they're saved simply, merely because they were raised in a Christian home. Or because they affirm still the Bible's teaching on various topics. But then, then the next generation looks apparently all these that affirm are not making any difference in their life. So just jettison. Let's just abandon. We don't believe these truths anymore. This is not making effect on the way you live your life. Therefore, just abandon the truth. Let's just do something else. And so they abandon the faith altogether. And the only way to get that faith back is through another move of the gospel, a revival of sorts. That's what happens. This is the cycle. And and what I'm asking you this morning is, what about you? Are you trusting in Christ this morning or something else? So many people, so many people in our culture, evangelical culture, are trusting in a decision or an experience that they had a long time ago when they walked in front of the church or they prayed with a pastor And we've all had many of those experiences, haven't we? Some of those experiences were deeply emotional. Some of them are real. Don't hear me saying that they're they're all false. They're not. Many of those are real. But, hear me, some of them are not real. This is so important. Okay? Don't get offended with me. Get offended with Jesus. And, And don't get offended with him. Actually see his love through this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying is that is that so many of these decisions, these experiences, these things that we had, they're very emotional. But the question is not was the experience emotional. The question is not did you get goosebumps. The question is not were you excited. The question is not when you were four and your dad said, hey, do you like fire? And, you're like, and he said, well, God says that if you don't, you're going to burn in fire. Do you want to do that? And he's like, no. Okay. What is that? So a four-year-old scared to death of fire and somehow he has an experience and therefore he's saved? I mean, what are we teaching? What are we teaching our children? How are we teaching them? The question is not, did you experience some form of emotion or some form of, of fear or some form of excitement? The question has always been, did you experience what the Bible calls saving faith? What's saving faith? How can you tell? Well, couple couple of clear things here. Did your life change? I mean, if a tree is known by its fruit, and if a good tree produces good fruit, did your life change? Does your life, what about right now? Does your life give evidence of being on the broad way or the narrow way? Let's evaluate yourself this morning. See, because we can claim all that we want, that we have walked through the gate of Jesus, the narrow gate. But if we live like the world and we act like the world, then why do we assume that we are on the narrow path to eternal life? Why do people assume that? People are, they're convinced. Man, I prayed that prayer when I was five. I prayed that prayer when I was six. And for the rest of their life, they live completely like the world with no care or affection for God. But God bless them because they're saved because they had an experience when they were six. And I'm saying, and Jesus is saying, you better be really, really careful. Because there is a person when they are saved, their life is changed and they walk a narrow path. And if you're not walking a narrow path, that should be a massive alarm to you going off. Big alarm that you might not have the real thing inside you. Jesus says you'll produce it. It will come out of you if it's good. Listen, if you're here today as a non-Christian, I just want to tell you that the way a man is saved is by turning from his sin to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the evidence that that has happened is transformation in one's life. The evidence that you have passed through the narrow gate is that right now you are walking on the narrow road. 
in obedience to Jesus. So we don't trust in an emotional experience we had when we were kids or the time when we were scared to death of hell. You know what a true Christian says? A true Christian says this. He says, the way I know that I'm saved has very, very little to do with the feeling I had. But the fact that right now I am looking to Jesus as the author and the perfecter of my faith. And I have great assurance because I can see the changes that he has brought about in my life. And I can see the way he consistently disciplines me as a father when I step into sin because he is relentless in his pursuit of me and that he guards and protects my life and soul. That's how I know I'm saved. Not because I got goosebumps at the front of a church 20 years ago and my life never changed. It's crazy talk. So those two paths, they lead to two final destinations. Either you're on a hard road leading to life or you're on an easy road leading to destruction. People object and they say, that's just too restrictive. They say, you know, I just, I can't believe that because look, man, come on. There are many, many paths to God. There are many roads that lead to God. And you know, you know what my response is to that? Here's my response is that you're right. There are many paths to God. There are many roads to God. It's true that whatever path you're on, it will lead to God someday. You will stand before God. You will meet him. You will meet your maker. But only one path, only one path will present you to God without fault and blameless before him someday. Only one path will lead you to God with great joy. Every other path, it will present you to God, but it will present you to God as totally condemned in his presence. So do all roads lead to God? You betcha they do. But they lead to either a God of justice or a God of, or a God of mercy in your case. In saying the gate is narrow and the way is hard, it's like Jesus is gathering up all the objections to Christianity and then he's going to begin to answer them. Objections like Christianity is too narrow. Why does it have to be so exclusive? Christianity is hard. I don't like what it says. I'm not going to be told what to do. I prefer to be accepted by my peers. Christianity is weird. It feels like the wrong side of history. It doesn't work in polite society. None of my friends believe it. No one who is intellectual really accepts this. The miracles, the strange teaching, the ethical demands. Christianity is weird. It's hard. It's narrow. And Jesus takes every one of those objections and he says, yes, yes. Of course it's hard. Of course it's narrow and exclusive. Of course it's countercultural and thus weird. Of course it won't make you popular with your friends or society. But, but it's the only way that leads to life. So just choose to be weird for Jesus. If you want life. Now if you want to be cool, then you can have that. But I'm just telling you, it's a temporary gift. You'll have your praise now. You'll have your fun now. But there's a day on the circled in red, and it's got your name on it. It's the day of your death. And you're going to stand before Jesus someday, and you're going to give it. And then the party ends over. The fun's over. But I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, the, the fun has just begun. There's a sacrifice in this life. But, oh, it'll be well worth it on that last day when we stand before Jesus. And we're free of sin. And we're in his presence, worshiping him on this new earth. See, but if you don't understand that, then you're deceived. And so Jesus turns our attention to 21 through 27, which is some of the most, I would say these are 21 through 27 are some of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. Jesus warns us about false profession. In 21 through 23, what you have is lip service. You know, the guy who just talks all the time. He's a big talker. Oh, God, la, 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 la. Just all this stuff about God all the time. Just lip service. No action. No obedience. And then in 24 through 27, you have ear service. Oh, he's a guy who listens really well. I love preaching. I love to hear really good preaching. But nothing changes in his life. No action. So you got lip service in 21 through 23. Ear service in 24 through 27. In both cases, these guys are deceived. And so Jesus says in 21, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But which one? Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? But... The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's the point? 
These are people who talk about Jesus, but they don't follow him. These are people who listen well to Jesus, but they don't do what he says. And because of that, Jesus says to them, what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. I I never knew you. Terrifying words. Shocking words. And here's the really scary thing. These guys themselves are shocked. That's how he paints the picture. They're shocked. They say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? It's almost like they're angry at Jesus someday. What? What do you mean I can't get in? Did I not cast out? I, I casted out demons. I prophesied. What do you mean to get in? And I did that in your name, Jesus. How dare you not let me in here? What do you mean you're not going to let me in? I did all that in your name. I went to church every Sunday. Lord, did we not testify for you? Did we not preach for you? Did I not go to the mission field for you? Did I give my money for you sacrificially? Did I not do ministry for you? And Jesus says, I don't know you. I don't know you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? People coming to the judgment seat of Christ, thinking that they're approaching a close friend, only to hear him say, I'm sorry. I I don't know who you are. You don't belong here. Please leave. I don't know you. I never knew you. That's going to happen, friends. That's going to happen to people. That may not happen to any of us. See, the reason why you're hearing this word right now is so that it won't happen to you. Okay? God, please create faith right now. Please, may God regenerate some of you. Here's why I'm preaching. Hear me. Listen. The reason why this is in the Bible is so that you wake up right now, right now, right now. Hear the voice of God. He's saying to you, that does not have to happen to you. And the way that you know that it won't happen to you is that if you stop trusting in anything else other than Jesus alone, come to him right now. Say, Jesus, you're everything to me. I need you. I have to have you. I want to go through the narrow gate. I want to give up my life. I want to completely trust in you, not in anything I'm doing for you. But in you, your righteousness, not my performance for you, but you and you alone. You come to him in that way right now, you'll be saved. And you won't have to stand before Jesus on that last day and hear those terrifying words that, hear me, people will hear. That's why it's in the Bible. People are going to hear that. Now, now maybe you understand why I said these are some of the most terrifying words in the Bible. See, anyone can say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. But many who do so are just honoring him with their lips. They make false professions of faith. They deceive themselves. Here's the scary thing. This is self-deception at its worst. They think they have the real thing. They think they belong to Jesus, even though they never truly repented. What's the evidence? Their life never changed. They didn't live under the lordship of Jesus, and that's blatantly obvious because of the way they flippantly live their life. Friends, listen, it's not enough to... to to listen to Jesus or even acknowledge him as Lord. Do you know that? It's not enough to even acknowledge him that he's the Lord of all the universe. We must go on to obey him. True discipleship is not seen. True discipleship is seen. It is seen in what you do and who you are, not just what you say. I mean, we can talk all day long about stuff. But true discipleship is seen in what you do, who you become, who you are. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, it's not enough to hear Christ's words and understand them. It's not enough to hear his words and talk about them. It's not enough to hear his words and admire them. We must hear them and do them. Make note of this. Jesus does not speak because he wants to be heard. Jesus speaks because he wants to be obeyed. He doesn't want your ear service. And here's the thing. If you only give Jesus lip service and ear service, you will be condemned someday. Okay? And that's what Jesus is steering us away from. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And what happened to that man? Verse 27. The rain fell. 
the floods came. The winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. That's sad, isn't it? Don't you feel that? Isn't that sad? It's sad that some people are building their houses on the sand and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. See, that's what we're trying to cut through this morning so that you do know it. And maybe you came here this morning and you thought, man, you've sure enough, your house is built on a rock. And nobody ever told you. And somebody actually told you, hey, man, if anybody ever tells you to doubt your faith, man, you tell them, man, I got a date in my Bible when I prayed that prayer with, Jesus, with before Jesus and with my pastor. And, I, and I'm telling you, hey, man, you need to dismiss that because what that guy told you is not helpful. And what you need to be thinking this morning is, is my life give evidence? Okay, let's not listen to that counsel. Let's listen to Jesus' counsel. Jesus' counsel is this. Do you do what he says? Are you on the narrow path? Have you walked through the narrow gate? Has your life changed? Let's listen to that counsel. And then and then respond accordingly. So maybe you're here today thinking that your house is built on the rock, but if but if it's not and you're beginning to see that this morning, if so, then the greatest thing to moment in this room is for you to realize that and run to Jesus for covering. And to say, Oh no, my house is built on the sand. Oh no, God, please, I've got to get my house on the rock. Before it's too late, because I see the clouds forming and, and the wind is beginning to blow and it's getting dark outside and the rain is coming. God, is there not room for me in that house on the rock? And Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, there's a lot more room if you're willing to come. If you're willing to come right now, there's room in there for you right now. Are you sure, Jesus? Oh, I'm absolutely sure the door is open. Come in. But in a moment, that door will be shut. And when it's shut. That'll be it. That'll be your last chance. And, and, and I'm saying to you through the Holy Spirit and his inspiration this morning, the door is open, dear friends. Go in to the door. <laughs> Don't stand outside and wonder what are those people doing in there sacrificing and suffering so much when we're partying and having fun. Realize that you better put down the partying and you better go through the door as the storm is coming. So I'm praying somebody's going to get saved this morning hearing this. This is basic gospel. All right. So what's your house built on? You still not sure? All right. Here's what I'm going to do. If you're still not sure, let me give you some scripture to help you discern before we get out of here. Here they are. Twelve indications according to scripture that you may have a false profession of faith. Are you ready for this? Twelve indications that you may have a false profession of faith. Test yourself. This is scripture. Here we go. Number one, you think you're a good person even though the Bible says you're not. Okay? Romans 3.12, all have sinned. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Number two, you control your own life and you're submitted to your will. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Number three, you call Jesus Lord, but you don't do what he says. 1 John 2.4, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Number four, you don't have a lifestyle of repentance. 2 Timothy 2.19, these are breathtaking words. 2 Timothy 2.19, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Must turn away from wickedness if you confess the name of the Lord. You don't have a lifestyle of repentance. Number five, you consider yourself to be a carnal Christian. Carnal Christian, in quotes, when there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Paul says, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with his passions and desires. Crystal clear. John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1.6. Number six. Your character is consistent with the old man instead of the new man. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Number seven, 
you love yourself more than you love Christ. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Number eight, you love the world and the things in the world. First John 2, 15, Jesus, we, we read through, through the Holy Spirit, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Number nine, you live according to your sinful nature. Your mind is set on the flesh, not set on the spirit. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Where's your mind set? You live an enemy of the cross and that is seen by what you worship. Philippians 3, 18 and 19, for many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, is their stomach. Their glory, they glory in their shame and their mind is set on earthly things. Number 11, you're ashamed of Jesus and his words. Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed When he comes in his glory. And number 12. Your life is characterized by worldly sorrow. Not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Brings death. Listen. The most loving thing I can tell you this morning. Is that Jesus is not fooling around. When it comes to discipleship. Okay, that should be the implication of those verses. He is not fooling around when it comes to discipleship. So this whole like I I I I made a profession of faith in Jesus and I'm living any old one is not going to cut it with Jesus. Don't think for a second that you that not if you claim to be a disciple, that better be obvious in how you live. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you will be perfect. You're gonna really struggle with sin, but I'm just saying there needs to be a trajectory of obedience in your life. One final word. And we're done. Verses 28 and 29. We read this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. What's clear is that Jesus is the son of God. He is equal to God in authority and power. But you know the sad thing? Is that even though the crowds knew this, Matthew does not say they repented and believed. He just says they're astonished. And as, as if being astonished was enough. It's not enough to be astonished by Jesus. That means it's possible to hear faithful gospel preaching, appreciate it, even enjoy it, download it, podcast it, share it with your friends, and yet not embrace the Christ that it's all pointing to. Because embracing Christ savingly is to embrace him as the functional, daily, practical Lord of your life. And my question for you this morning is this. Have you done that? Have you done that? If not, let's do it today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This is, this is a hard word. But I'm so thankful that you have hard words in the Bible to steer us uh, away from self-deception and into life. And that you're after our joy this morning and our happiness. That you're after our good and that, and that, and that, that's what proves that you love us, is that you're telling us truthful things. And so I pray that this morning that even though some of us are just maybe bothered by this, just frustrated by this, just shattered by this, that God, this would be a great, an amazing day of realization and that you would be moving among these folks gathered here this morning and that you would save some, save some. And may they stand up here in a, in a few weeks and testify that, that that was the moment that life came to me and I realized I needed Jesus. And they came and they responded in faith to Christ. And I ask that you would do this in your powerful and glorious and awesome name. And I just want to say if there's anybody here this morning who is sensing that this is a crossroads in, in your life and you know that you need to, this is it, this is the moment. And that you need to repent. And I'm just going to plead with you. Just go find one of us as pastors or a Christian beside you. And let's get right with God today. 
and come and talk to us, and we want to help you through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's sing the last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound. we part here this morning, I want to uh, just give you a couple of announcements. There's no Lord's Supper tonight. We had that at our Good Friday service, so don't come here. If you come here, you'll be by yourself. Um, I encourage you to worship Jesus nonetheless, but try not to make that mistake. Number two, uh, the Reach Women's Retreat is coming up, so go out there and sign up if you're planning on going and and having that fellowship with the ladies in our church. It's going to be a great um, weekend together. And uh, number three, if you're a guest and you don't have lunch plans, we want to serve you pizza right up there in that room. Um, it, there's no nothing, no, no no strings attached. We just want to answer any questions that you may have about our church and, um, and, and provide you with lunch and pizza. So feel free to come up and be with us. We would love for you to do that. Don't be shy. Just come on up, and uh, we promise you'll uh, enjoy your time up there with us. And so the last thing is, let me give you a benediction from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you all. Amen.